Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we had the opportunity to interview Dr. Andy Kirkpatrick. Dr. Kirkpatrick is a trauma surgeon at the University of Calgary, and in this episode, we discuss a variety of things ranging from telemonitored ultrasound to space medicine to tips for research productivity. Today, we're lucky enough to have Dr. Kirkpatrick with us. Uh, Andy, um, first, you know, we know how busy you are. You've really been a... um, mainstay of academic surgery in Canada for a long time now, so we really appreciate your time. Uh, Over the years, you've co-authored a number of really interesting Canadian Journal of Surgery publications. Um, They've certainly spanned a a wide variety of topics, a wide range of topics, but they really cluster around two clear passions that it seems like you have, one being ultrasonography and the other being space medicine. So we were curious, how, how did you fall into each of those things and sort of who influenced you and and what was that voyage like and and who was involved with it in the early days? You know, uh, well, um, first of all, thank you to both of you for this invitation and, again, for for your leadership. And uh, it it is an absolute pleasure to be here, and I'll try to do justice to those questions. Um, I'll separate them out into ultrasound. And the, to me, it just, it's always seemed natural that you would not go near a sick patient without an ultrasound. And that was kind of not only taught to me, but demonstrated to me by Bernie Belanger, Fred Brenneman, and Barry McClellan at Sunnybrook. And even when I was a resident, um, I may not have realized at the time what national leaders they were. I I do recognize in retrospect, but they just, that was their message. Like, you use an ultrasound to see a sick patient. And um, I was lucky enough to be mentored by them. And I think uh, a message that will come through this whole talk is just how important mentorship is and how hopefully you can try and give back. And um, I'm very proud of some of the people I've mentored and I'll, I'll um, humbly include you in that list. But uh, Bernie and Fred and Barry just brought ultrasound in and um, we did research with it and I kind of left from my my fellowship expecting that every surgeon everywhere was using ultrasound. And I very quickly learned that wasn't it's uh, how it was working. And But I took that with me to Vancouver and I wound up uh, in my first year in front of the Di- Diagnostic Accreditation Committee of the um, College of British Columbia. And I sort of just explained what we were doing with ultrasound, why we were doing it. And uh, I think I was one of the first um, people in, or non radiologists in British Columbia that had permission to use ultrasound. And um, I think one of my passions has been uh, trying to expand the use of ultrasound in point of care resuscitation 
beyond the fast. You know, I think the fast is an incredibly powerful tool that has been, has been borne out using ultrasound for innumerable uh, indications has, has just become accepted. And I, and I think one of the things I, I lament maybe is that I think based on the early work of uh, Belanger and Brenneman, um, surgery had a, had a chance to lead the, um, sort of the adoption and the rolling out of point-of-care ultrasound for sick people across uh, Canada. And I think that was an opportunity that was partially squandered. And I've, uh, I've talked about that in some of my presidential addresses to the Trauma Association of Canada. But um, to be honest, I think ultrasound is still underutilized. They still have thousands of things to learn about how to use it. And uh, But I'm, I'm uh, excited by the next generation that has embraced this. Um, and I think the other question was space medicine. Um, I ha have always been interested in flying. I'm a private pilot. I was a flight surgeon in the military. And I think it was that uh, military exposure that um, opened my eyes to space medicine. And there was a natural progression of, of challenges. And I think it all comes back to wanting to do a better job with saving lives and with uh, the, the real opportunity to save lives in trauma care is it's pre-hospital or even before the patient arrives in hospital. And whether you call it space medicine or austere medicine or expedition medicine or far forward medicine, um, it's really just the challenges of trying to uh, resuscitate catastrophic injuries in a setting without all the, all the resources that you have in a hospital with often uh, without all the personnel you have in a hospital. But some of the leaders I would have to... <clears throat> think uh, Mark Campbell, who's probably the surgeon in the world that's done the most parabolas of weightlessness in parabolic flight, and Doug Hamilton, one of our own colleagues here in Calgary, who were uh, very influential in exposing me to space medicine and helping me very early on in my career. And, you know, and, and this might be even out of place, but I'm, I'm kind of think where to fit it in. Uh, maybe it could be cut and pasted somewhere. But I really, I, I was thankful enough to say it to his face, but I really would thank um, Dr. Bryce Taylor, who was the program director when I was a resident. And there was three things he did that were totally out of the box. And uh, he allowed me to go to D-Day plus 50 as a regimental medical officer of the Queen's Own Rifles, and I was able to be on the beach with uh, veterans when they were still healthy enough to tell stories that you couldn't imagine. Uh, well, they told me they'd never had a chance to tell their families. And he also let me do the first year of my ICU fellowship as a fourth-year surgical resident, which, which was incredibly um, efficient in saving years of my life. But the other thing that Dr. Taylor let me do was actually a, a month-long elective where I did the flight surgeon's course as a reserve officer in the Canadian military, but also a surgical resident. So those, you know, those are out-of-the-box things that had an inc incredible influence in my life. So I do have to thank Bryce Taylor for, for those 
decisions he made uh, many years ago. I think one one thing that stands out for me as being your trainee is, you know, uh, when you look at someone's research profile, you kind of look and think, oh, you know, <clears throat> where, where do my future interests lie and can I make my practice like theirs, my career like theirs? And you look at your academic career and you think, whoa, that, those are very unusual, different, unique kind of academic interests. What's that been like for you? In terms of your profile, has that been lonely, or has that just kept you alive and and uh, passionate? I, I would say absolutely not. That um, this research and this challenge and these adventures and learning um, have brought me a network of thousands of friends and colleagues worldwide. That. Um, are just as passionate. And, and when you interact with your colleagues around the world who are facing the same challenges, what, you know, if it's, I mean, sometimes those challenges are in a different language and from a different structure of their oversight committees or their um, legalities or the even the country's um, health system. But really, they're all the same challenges of trying to to make things better and new, and so it hasn't been anything but uh, but lonely. If we switch gears a little bit, and I was to ask you a bit of an esoteric but fun question: when when do you think we're going to be on Mars? And and more than that, how how do you how would you see ideally space medicine on a trip like that? That's extended duration. Well, um. When I was a ICU fellow, I spent a month down in uh, um, Houston at Krug Life Sciences. I actually, because I was Canadian, I could never get on to Johnson Space Center. So I was able to sit in the corporate library of Krug Life Sciences, and I had access to all kinds of unpublished data, and I basically wrote up a review of um, surgery in space and, and trauma in space from A to Z. And that was one of my first huge um, breaks that I got because that opened all kinds of doors for me. Uh, but um, down there at the time, when, when, I went, when I went down there for was to work on trauma pod. And trauma pod was both, and I came from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects. Um, uh, group and was also going to be a so it's part of the U.S. military for battlefield robotic surgery and uh, completely autonomous salvaging of far forward casualties and and it was also uh, there was going to be a complete surgical capability on space station freedom and uh, space station freedom was going to have a level two trauma capability and. It was it was incredible, and, and and planning was very advanced for it. But um, albeit uh, trauma pod, there was a working um, mock up a few years ago uh, that you know certainly was not ready to be in a mobile armored platform. And space station freedom eventually became a reality with the International Space Station, but many, many 
um, degrees reduced. Um, there have been countless plans put forward. And, and, and sorry, in the time I was down in Houston, the design reference mission was a series of advanced drawings and concepts about when humans were going to go to Mars. And, and when I was down there, it was just accepted that we would already be in Mars about 2009. Um, so that has come and gone. So, so I have many other proposals. And I, to my understanding, I haven't followed as closely as I used to. We, you know, the NASA is still hoping to be on Mars in the mid 2030s to some degree, but nobody exactly knows how that is going to happen. Um, but I think no matter no matter what, whether we go or not, I think having a mission brings out the best in the human race. That. You know, on a positive mission, you know, we, we people work together for a challenge. They overcome. They learn. It stimulates kids to do want to do sciences. So I think trying to go to Mars may even be more important than actually going to Mars. You know, that, that's kind of my personal thoughts on that. And you know, how will space medicine uh, be involved in uh, in in going to Mars? Again, that's many people are trying to figure that out right now. And I think um, space medicine on a mission to Mars is going to be different. I mean, it has to be different from space medicine on the, on the International Space Station right now um, in low Earth orbit. And just the difference is going to have to be that space medicine on the way to Mars will have to be autonomous. Like, and, and so... The interim space medicine that supports the space station uh, is an example of uh, how space medicine can give back to the, the planet. And I was very lucky to be uh, involved with Scott Dolchowski, Doug Hamilton, and Ashot Sargsian, who really were the innovators of remote telemetered ultrasound. Because on the, on the International Space Station, there's a state-of-the-art ultrasound machine but there's nobody that can actually use that ultrasound. Or, or sorry, take that. That's, that was trained to use that ultrasound. But they have shown that if you take an intelligent person who's willing to listen, they can be mentored by a remote expert to get incredibly accurate results if you work out um, the communications and just the human factors involved in that. And And so one of our... Other projects for a long time has been um, how to spin back off remote telemetered ultrasound back here on Earth. And I don't think we have, um, you know, there's much more to do, <clears throat> but I think that remote telemetered ultrasound has led into uh, recognizing that just making a diagnosis doesn't save lives. It's remotely mentoring interventions. And, and our work in the last few years has been very much in trying to um, learn how to best mentor a point-of-care provider who's having to perform hugely out of scope to save a life um, somewhere far forward, austere, remote, or operational, whatever you want to call it. And we have been um, awed or, or just so impressed by what people can do if, if they are mentored properly. But 
that whole science of how to mentor, what to mentor, when to mentor is, is a largely untouched body of knowledge that I think needs to be um, studied, defined, and documented as almost as a standalone medical specialty. I would predict, again, learning those technologies and techniques, and especially human factors, will, again, have way more benefit back on Earth than it will for actual the, the man mission or the, the people mission to Mars. This is a bit of a, a meandering uh, sort of leverage question on that, Andy, but, you know, in knowing you and being around you for what's pretty close to 20 years now or coming up on 20 years and, you know, my experience at the Johnson Space Center, um, as well as you and, and giving talks around the world, looking in places, for example, like Australia, where when there's a trauma resuscitation up in Darwin, that is real-time fed into Brisbane where the trauma surgeon sits in a, in a closed, quiet room and helps them facilitate and, and care for that patient real-time, whether it's ultrasound or just the resuscitation, non-ultrasound sort of work. Um, there's some really amazing things going on in it. And when, when I've always listened to you talk about this element of, of telementoring and simulcast and, and all that terminology in the space medicine world, it does make me feel somewhat guilty that we haven't, at least from my point of view, we haven't leveraged it properly in, this, in Canada, in this country, that very much, you know, huge, huge portions, uh, you know, are, are outside of an hour's care, as we know from Morad Hamid's study. Um, we just don't seem to have either that infrastructure or that will to try and deliver that care to remote Canadians. What, what do you think about that as a concept and as an issue, whether, whether I've imagined, imagined it or not? No, I, I feel your guilt just, <laughs> if not more intensely, Cause, you know, because I've had a couple more years to think, why haven't we done more? Why haven't I done more? And I, And sometimes I feel like the more we work with this, the, the less we're ready for prime time. And I, I think we haven't necessarily proven that it makes a difference. And, and I think that's, um, I'll park that theme about wanting to make a difference and wanting to do good research versus just publishing papers. Like, again, I'll, I'll thank Doug Hamilton. Um, after it became, you know, after NASA adopted remote telemetric ultrasound as the, one of the basic platforms for all medical care on the space station, looking at an incredible wide array of out-of-the-box uses, um, Doug came back and said, you know, we've got satellites in Canada up north with unused bandwidth. They're, they're wanting to, to give the bandwidth away almost. We need to make this happen. Well, we, we started off with kind of a bite-and-hold type strategy, and we, um, I believe, had the world's first-time acute care, live patient um, tele-ultrasound link between the Banff Mineral Springs Hospital and Foothills in the trauma room. And we, I believe, made the first remotely mentored diagnosis of a pneumothorax. We identified major hemoperitoneum that facilitated a direct-to-the-operating resuscitation by passing a merge. It worked amazing for the first couple months. But, but the Achilles heel 
was the human factors. And I think this has been learned time and time again um, around the world that it wasn't sustainable without a huge amount of goodwill and patience. And I think the goodwill is always there, but, but patience is not something that fits into acute trauma care because we had to respond physically to a telemedicine console that was in the emergency room of Foothills. And even a few minutes is just something you don't have for acute trauma care. And so that, that, that was kind of the Achilles heel where it's like, no, people are not going to wait for me to drive in and show up on the ultrasound console. They want decisions now. Um, and that led us to the whole pathway of, uh, you know, mentoring on handheld devices, uh, wanting to be completely mobile, so that now the, the fact that we can connect, you know, anybody can. You, you know, with your the, the computing power that you're probably holding, we're all talking on our phones, I think, the computing power there is just so much uh, more than a room-sized computer 20 years ago. We really can connect and communicate with, with anybody. So then I thought, okay, this is the answer now. But then um, scratching a little deeper, we realized that we don't really know how to mentor and what to mentor. Because um, you might agree with me, some of the greatest tactical surgeons in the world are some of the worst mentors. You know, they, they don't um, have that ability to speak the language of a non-surgical first responder or ski patroller or military medic. So all in all, this whole area, we need to figure out what we want to do, not just the fact that we have the technology to do it, but what we want to do, how we have to do it. And then I think realistically, to get it funded, we need to prove it makes a difference. So we do need well-structured clinical trials, including randomized trials uh, involving simulation where you can actually have pathology or no pathology. And hopefully that those are the the next steps towards making a difference. Um, and and that, may, that may be working, I kind of, um, you know, um, I like to maybe bottom up. Uh, an alternative would be to have um, a government or a health minister or somebody mandate from top down, which would be nice. But I suspect to mandate from top down, they're going to want some evidence. And I think that's a responsibility for us to produce the evidence to allow somebody to say, you know, we're all doing it in the story. Andy, do you have any, any advice or take-home tricks or, or even framework for uh, achieving satisfaction in terms of research and research productivity for surgical trainees or junior staff surgeons or people who aren't as, as all-in and, and experienced as, as you. What, what would you say to those folks to try and, uh, you know, ignite that passion or maintain that passion? Do something that excites you. That if you have a project and it's your project and your question and you're, just, you're interested in the results, you will, will do the work. If, if somebody, if you say, okay, I want a project and somebody gives you a uh, an idea that's theirs and you're not behind it, nothing's ever going to happen. So it, it, um, when people come to me, 
looking for ideas. I, I, I try to get them to reflect a little bit and like what what interests them, what what will make them passionate. And you know, passion will drive you a long way, but the lack of it is a huge barrier. Is there anything you wish someone had told you, let's say, um, where if you were sitting in my shoes, sort of just about to start their uh, career, is there anything you wish someone had told you um, at, at, at that time? Well, I think I always knew it or it was integral to me, but I wish somebody had maybe told me it was okay. Don't be embarrassed about being an opportunist. That, and I, and I, and I, don't, I mean that in a positive way as opposed to the negative spin on it. But when there's an opportunity to learn, grab it. When there's an opportunity for research, grab it, even if it doesn't, doesn't fit. But if it's, you know, that's your, you can work on a passionate project now when it doesn't really fit into your life versus wait until you, three months for the block, then you've lost that opportunity. Um, be an opportunist in killing three birds with one stone. Um, that, you know, combining your, your passions and, and working, and I think working with people who you click with, that click with you, that empower you, even if they're in another continent, you know, may, is, in this day and age where we uh, really, we, we text the people in the office next to us anyways, that to don't let geography hold you back, um, you know, to, to, to try and build those networks of collaborators as early as you can because they will empower you for your entire life. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.